invite you to open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, we're going to be reading verses 21 through 26. And as Adam prayed this morning, looking at the great foundational doctrine of justification and how it, um, it's the core of the gospel and it's the core of a life of a Christian. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. As you remember, Paul has been through um, chapters 1, 2, and 3, laying out the desperate, fallen condition of mankind. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, there's no, none who does good, no, not one. And that by the law, no one will be justified. Uh, no one is going to be able to do enough good to make up for the bad. I, I was talking to a man just... Uh, uh, when we were down in Florida, uh, a guy was fishing next door, w- walked over to him, struck up a conversation, and um, uh, he just made a comment that I followed up on about um, spiritual matters, and we ended up talking about if you were to die tonight and God said, why should I let you in my heaven, what would you say? And he's he just very honestly, wonderful man, uh, very, I'm a very honest person, I'm too honest, and uh, that's his conf- that was his confidence. And that's what everybody does by nature, right? We appeal to the law to justify ourselves and, and confident that there's, there's at least one good thing in spite of everything else maybe that's true. There's at least one thing that we can appeal to as our righteousness. And Paul in, has destroyed that foundation, that false hope in chapters 1 through 3. And now he reveals the, the one and only hope for sinners. And that is the hope of the gospel in justification. Let's give our attention 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God in heaven, open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things that you have revealed to us here in these words, in these verses. And Father, I I pray again for your Holy Spirit to help me to preach, help us to hear, and help us to believe, to believe that our life might be filled with joy and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. I suppose all of us have um, certain moments of time in our Christian life that are memorable, things that, uh, times that we remember God used in a particular way to open our eyes to maybe some new truth, and uh, we've never forgotten it. Well, one of those moments in my life uh, happened in 1986 or early 87, I'm not positive, but I'll um, remember sitting in the auditorium at First Assembly of God, on, uh, they were having a conference, a weekend conference, and Friday night... Uh, this old man got up, don't remember his name, I can see his face, I can hear his voice, um, got up and he preached on Romans 15 verse 13. Now may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he believed in a man who believed in, he preached it like a man who believed in every word uh, that he spoke. And uh, he pointed out how we so often and easily live our life according to the circumstances of our life. Our, we think about our health and our relationships and our job and how we feel and our difficulties and trials and, and heartaches and fears. And so it's, it's common for Christians to live day to day feeling weighed down and distressed and anxious. And this old preacher got on his, uh, on his heels and he just laid it out. That that is not God's intended experience for his children. There is a glorious, rich, transforming experience of love and grace that God intends his children to, to know, to experience, and it happens through believing. It happens by laying hold, grasping by faith onto the facts of our glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're looking at one of the most important of those glorious facts. And one of those facts that by believing it, laying hold of it, you will find burdens rolling off your, your back, fears being dismissed. You'll find joy and peace entering into your life. If, if there was ever a gospel fact intended to fill a Christian with joy and peace, it's the doctrine of justification. The fact that God has forgiven us all of our sin and has declared us once and for all to be innocent, righteous in His sight, and all by grace alone. It's, the, it's really the core not only of Christian theology, but Christian life. If, uh, you will not love Jesus deeply until you've grasped what Jesus has done for you in, in justification. The, the peace and the joy of salvation flow from the doctrine of justification. Um, battling and, and gaining victory over sin in your life flows from justification. As you understand and believe and apply this glorious truth. Just two main points this morning. First, what is it? And then how does it work? How does it happen? What is it? Well, maybe you remember your catechism, Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism 33. What is justification? It says justification is an act of God's free grace. It's an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, I'm just going to break that apart a bit, and we're going to focus uh, first, on this act of God, what sort of act is it? We're going to point out it's a legal act, first of all, and a declarative act, secondly. It's a legal act, a declarative act. You see, justification is a legal term. It's a, it's a term that functions in the context of a courtroom. It's, uh, it, it speaks about the legal issue we face as sinners who are accountable before the God who made us. I was reading a, an excellent book last week that uh, points out that every great story involves a problem, and the greater the problem, the greater the story. Well, that makes the gospel the greatest story of all time because it addresses the greatest problem 
for mortal men in a moral universe. The problem being the condemnation we are under due to our sin against a holy God. That is the problem, the greatest problem of your life. It's a problem that dwarfs time and determines your eternal destiny. How can you be made right with God? What will you say when you stand before the judgment throne? How can you possibly receive the verdict of righteous when you are not righteous? Now, there are many people who shy away from the talking of salvation in a legal manner. They, um, they speak of the gospel purely in relational terms. So, um, they'll, they, they just want to talk about the gospel as God-loving sinners God loving His erring children, God welcoming His prodigal children back home. And of course, that's all gloriously, wonderfully true. God welcomes sinners and invites sinners to come. But our problem as prodigal sons and daughters is not that we are unloved. Our problem is that we are unrighteous. One of the best books I've ever read, in fact, this might be the first great book I read back in college, was Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Patton. Cry the Beloved Country is a story of a father who, uh, in South Africa who learned that his son Absalom, who'd gone off to Johannesburg, had been involved in a, um, a robbery and a murder and had been found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. And the father goes and he visits his son for the last time. The, um, the problem, you see, that, that the, the great tension in the story is the father's great love for his son. You can just hear Absalom, my son, my son. And the father's utter inability to rescue his son. No matter how greatly he loved his, 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 his boy Absalom, a crime had been committed. The law had been violated and the law demanded his death. One of the recurring lines in the book is, it is written, it is written, it is written. The law requires his death. It demands an eye for an eye, a life for a life. And as much as he loves his son, there is nothing he can do to free him. Absalom must be executed. And Absalom was. The demands of justice must be satisfied. And so it's not enough, you see, to speak of salvation merely in relational terms. We have to speak of it in legal terms. The demands of justice apply. Our existential crisis is that we have violated the law. It is written that the soul that sins shall surely die. And Jesus, Jesus says not a, not a jot or a tittle of the law is going to be erased. We have a legal problem before the throne of divine justice. And so how shall we escape the condemnation that we so rightfully deserve? That's the issue addressed by justification. It speaks to our legal status as condemned sinners standing before the throne of God. And it tells us that by the sheer grace of God and the atoning work of Christ, our status is fundamentally changed from that of condemnation, which is also a legal term, to justification. It's a legal act. 
Secondly, it's a declarative act. Justification is a declarative act. Louis Burkhoff, in his Systematic Theology, writes, Justification is a judicial act of God in which he declares that all the claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner's. Now, of course, if you remember any of your church history, uh, you know that this was one of the key battles of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church did not believe that justification was an act of declaration, but they believed it was a process of transformation. One of the reasons they believe this is because the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Greek, and that's the Bible the, the, the early church used, that the Roman Catholic Church used, it translates the Greek word, diakasune, in the Latin phrase, justificare, which means to make righteous. To make righteous. The problem is, diakasune does not mean to make righteous, it means to declare righteous. You see, the, the heart of the gospel is this, this good news that while we are still unrighteous, God declares us to be righteous as he applies to us and imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. Now, God does both right, uh, things in salvation. He both declares us righteous and he transforms us, justification and sanctification. But we have to, we have to keep them distinct. You see, if, if, you, if you believe that um, justification is God making you righteous... It's a process. Well, it's going to affect your assurance before the Lord as well as your understanding of the gospel. You see, if you rest your assurance on your sanctification, you're going to live a miserable Christian life. If you ask yourself the question, how does God feel about me today? Ask you right now, how does God, how does God feel about you today? In light of the week that you've had, in light of the morning maybe you've had, in light of all the rebellion or uh, anger or whatever is going on in your, in your heart today, how does God the Father who knows you perfectly, how does he feel about you today? I asked the high school theology class that, and, and, and the universal response really was disappointed, frustrated, angry, you see, the reason we come to those conclusions is because we're basing uh, our answer to that question on our sanctification or lack of sanctification, our struggles in living a life that we know is pleasing to God. But you see, the, Paul wants to rescue us from living, uh, in, in um, resting our assurance on the law, on how well we're doing. That was the fatal error of the Jews. That's where they sought their assurance. We're children of Abraham. We follow the law of Moses. And Paul will say in chapter 10, verse um, 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God that is by faith, they sought to establish their own by the works of the law. And Paul here saying, to us, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't base your, assur don't base your assurance on how well you're doing today. Because if you're doing well, you're just, you'll just be proud, and if you're doing poorly, you'll be in despair. 
Paul is laboring to help us to realize there's a brand new glorious foundation for confidence and assurance and joy and peace before the Lord. Justification is God's act of declaration, not his process of transformation. Everywhere you see the word used in the Bible, it's used as a declaration. So Deuteronomy 25, just an example, 25 verse 1, we're told that when men have a dispute, they go to the court, and the judge there will either acquit the innocent or he'll condemn the guilty. That doesn't, when he acquits the innocent, he's not making the man innocent. He's not helping him become innocent. He's just judging, declaring the truth after having revealed the facts. The same when he condemns. He's not making the man guilty. He's declaring the man guilty after reviewing the facts. Well, justification is a legal, immutable, means unchangeable declaration from the judge of innocence before the law. Douglas Moose says, to justify is not to make righteous or even simply to treat as righteous, though one is not really righteous, but to declare righteous. This is a legal reality by which we are acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against us because of our sin. So this is a legal reality by which we are acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against us because of our sin. How many charges could be brought against you because of your sin? It's impossible to say. I mean, who could count that high? Of all the charges that could be brought against you and me for our sin. And yet, justification is God's declaration that we're acquitted of all charges. Let me, let me try to illustrate this a little more by contrast, what justification is not. From time to time, if you're paying attention to the news, you might hear that um, charges have been filed against a person for, for some alleged crime, but the prosecutor has decided to drop the charges. The state can drop charges for a variety of reasons. Uh, maybe there's a lack of evidence, so they just don't go to trial with it. Um, Maybe there's a, been a violation of proper procedure. Or, or maybe the victim refuses to cooperate. And so there's no, they can't move forward with the trial and they, they drop the charges. Now, the, uh, in, in most cases, charges that have been dropped can be picked up at a later date. Right? If new evidence comes through uh, and makes a stronger case. The prosecutor can reopen the investigation and reinstate the charges. I think a lot of Christians live as, that, as though that were how justification works. Where God says, okay, I'm, I'm willing to drop the charges, but if you keep messing up, right, we can reopen this case. If, um, if you don't sh- sh- straighten up, uh, these charges can be picked back up again. Many Christians live like, I've lived like that. Well, you see, there's not a lot of peace and joy in, in that, is there? You're not going to get a lot of comfort if those charges are, okay, they're dropped, but they're kind of hanging there in the, just in the background, and if you mess up too much, uh, coming right back at you. And you're back on trial, and you're back under condemnation. There's no peace, no joy in that 
doctrine. Well, praise God, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is radically different. Um, God declares that we are innocent of all charges and for all time, and they will never, ever be brought up again. But it's even better than that. You see, justification is also not like a dismissed charge. Uh, Charges can be dismissed by a judge's order. And in the legal world, uh, dismissal of charges is a lot better than dropped charges because a dismissed charge is done with. Prosecutor cannot bring up again a dismissed charge. But justification is better than that. You see, when it comes to gospel justification, charges are not dropped Charges are not dismissed, but instead the charges are prosecuted. It goes to trial. The trial of your life is actually held. The law is applied with all of its brutal honesty about who you are and what you've done. And in spite of the fact that you have sinned, in spite of the fact that you deserve to be condemned, at the end of the trial, God the judge, who can do no wrong, officially, joyfully, and immutably declares you to be innocent of all charges, innocent for all time. And that's the end of the trial. There will never be another trial. The trial of your life is is complete. There will never be new evidence found that will bring the matter up again. There will never be new charges pressed. There will not be a new trial convened. In justification, God declares once and for all time you to be innocent of every charge. He declares us innocent before the law even though we have never once perfectly kept the law. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible for God to be just and the justifier of the ungodly, which is what Paul says in Romans 4, verse 5. Remember, God being just means God must always do what is right. How can God justify simply, notice in our text, that He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? Well, that's a great question. How is, that, how is that possible? How can he be just and justify me and you simply by faith in Jesus? And that's our second point. How is it possible? The Bible, friends, teaches that we are justified on the basis, not of our faith. Faith is the instrument. It's not the basis. God doesn't look at you and say, oh, you believe and your faith outweighs all the sin that you've committed. Your faith is a good work. You're a good person. I'll justify you. It's not how it works. The Bible teaches that we are justified on the basis of imputed righteousness. And I know you've got to put your thinking cap on here, but it's not that hard a concept. Imputed righteousness. Imputation uh, you might not be familiar with the term, but just imagine you got out and bought a, bought a car. You couldn't pay the whole thing off, so you took out a $10,000 loan. And things were going fine, but it was a variable rate, and 
and then of course the economy happens and the interest rate shoots up and then you lost your job and you're not able to make the monthly payments on your car and the bank sends you a friendly little notice saying if you don't uh, start making payments we're going to take ownership of your car well you're in a bind you don't have the money but then someone and maybe you know them maybe you don't doesn't matter but someone recognizes your plight of course, if you don't have a job, you can't go look for work. It's just going to make the spiral of despair continue. And someone steps forward and pays off the loan. That's imputation. It's not your money, but someone put forward the money, their money, satisfied the demands of the loan. The, the debt is gone, and you are free to move on with your life and your fully paid off car. See, that's the power of imputation. It accomplishes all that we need with resources we don't have. It's what God has accomplished for us in Christ. It's, there's, a, there's an actually double imputation involved where our sin and guilt is given to Jesus and His righteousness is given to us. It's the greatest exchange in the whole world. Where when you become a Christian, that's what happens. When you confess your sin and ask Jesus to be your Savior, that's what happens. The Bible says that when you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And to be saved means your sin has been placed upon Jesus Christ and His righteousness has been given to you. So Luther says, Martin Luther, Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness and I am thy sin. Thou hast taken on thyself what thou wast not and has given to me what I am not. We are justified, friends, on the basis of the imputed obedience and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why when you read the Gospels and you see how Jesus lived his life, you see a life full of grace and truth and without a shred of sin. When you see Jesus on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane, Pleading, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, and yet not what I will, but what you will. Your will be done. In complete surrender and obedience to God the Father. You should weep with joy because Jesus, as he's gripping the ground and sweating drops of blood, is, is accomplishing your salvation. He's accomplishing your righteousness there. That's the righteousness that is imputed to your account. So that, that Paul can say, who shall lay any charge then against God's elect? If, if that righteousness has been given and imputed to you, it's spotless, it's perfect, it's faultless. The devil can look for all of eternity to, for something to accuse you with. There's nothing there. The law has been satisfied in Jesus and that righteousness is imputed to your account. R.C. Sproul says, the forensic declaration of justification is not a legal fiction. The idea of legal fiction is that someone, uh, say a, a, a king in a, in a country that's a, Ruled by a king, right? The, 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 the legal fiction is the king can do no wrong. He's above the law. No matter what he does, he can do the most egregious things. The legal fiction is the king can do no wrong. And some will charge that the, uh, Paul's doctrine of the gospel is legal fiction because God is justifying, he's declaring innocent, guilty people. And people will say, well, you know, that's... that's He's just, he's just messing with the rules. No, he's not messing with the rules. God, you see, is 
applying the real righteousness of Jesus to you. And on the basis of that, pronouncing you just. Listen again to what Sproul says. The forensic declaration of justification is not a legal fiction. It is real and authentic because the imputation upon which it is based is no fiction. It is a real imputation of real righteousness, of a real Christ. Christ is our righteousness. Friends, that's the gospel. <clears throat> that's what Jesus came to accomplish, to be your righteousness. This is what is offered to sinners as a free gift of God's grace. This is what you receive by faith when you come to Christ. And this is what can fill your life with joy and peace. If you believe it, if you believe it. Martin Luther again says this, the real evil is that we trust our own power to be righteous and will not lift up our eyes to see what Christ has done for us. So the troubled conscience has no cure for its desperation and feeling of unworthiness, of unworthiness unless it takes hold of the forgiveness of sins by grace offered free of charge in Jesus Christ. If I tried to fulfill the law myself, I could not trust in what I had accomplished. Neither could it stand up to the judgment of God. So I rest only upon the righteousness of Christ, which I do not produce but receive. God the Father freely giving it to me through Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That can transform your life. We spend so much time thinking about the righteousness maybe that we produce, that we're trying to produce, and, and, and God calls us to live a righteous life, and the Holy Spirit is moving us to embrace righteousness as our way of life, and yet we fall short and fall short, and in the gospel, God wants us to know that whatever progress we make in sanctification, in growing in righteousness, it has to be founded on this rock of justification, a free gift of righteousness given to us in Christ. That'll change your life. There's a great illustration of that in Luke's gospel, chapter 7. There, Luke tells us about this wicked woman, almost certainly a prostitute. And she goes to the house of Simon the Pharisee because Jesus is there. What a, what a hard place to enter. The, the place of men who have ridiculed and mocked and scorned her and shamed her. And, and yet she goes there because she has this desperate need to be made right with God. She's a sinner made in the image of God. Her conscience is tormenting her. The law of God is judging her. How can she, a wicked woman, how can she be saved? And somehow she knows that Jesus is the answer. And so she goes into the house and she finds Jesus reclining at the table and she kneels down by his feet and she begins to weep. She's weeping so much that she's flooding his feet with her tears and then she lets loose her hair, which would be a, a very bold, almost scandalous act in that day and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. She's worshiping him. And then she takes this, this jar of, of precious perfume, maybe the most precious thing she owns, and she pours it over his feet. And you just got to ask yourself a question. What in the world happened to this woman? Nobody does this. What, what, what moves her to such astonishing vulnerability and to such extravagant expressions of love and adoration? What happened to her? What happened, you see, is 
She grasped somehow by faith the central truth of the gospel that in Jesus, she, though a wicked, wicked woman, somehow Jesus loved her and forgave her and Jesus could make her right with God. Somehow Jesus made her right with God. And friends, that's, that's the core of the Christian message. Right? Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to his cross we cling. This is our one and only hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We don't dare trust how we feel about ourselves. How we feel even about God. We trust only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Is that your hope this morning? Is that what you're resting on? Do you have rest? Are you laying hold of this doctrine? And friends, I, I ask it as a man who so often doesn't. Who frets and fears and full of anxiety and what does God think of me? And it's all been answered in the, in the work of the cross. It's all been answered in the doctrine of justification. God has told you what he thinks of you. As you come to, to him in faith in Jesus Christ, acknowledging you've you got nothing to bring but your sin and your need, God tells us what he thinks. Innocent, righteous, beloved, because of Jesus Christ. And so my plea to you would just let that truth sink in. Lay hold of it. Let it change the way you think about yourself and the way you think about your struggles and about your life, about your relationships. Let the love of God be poured into your heart through that beautiful channel of justification. That you have been loved most magnificently by a Father who is just and a justifier of sinners like you and like me. And there'll never be another trial. The charge will never be brought up again. You're free to live in the abundance of God's love and grace. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Father in heaven, you know our hearts and you know our fears, our anxieties. Forgive us, oh Lord, for seeking our assurance in our behavior, in our sanctification. Jesus, I thank you that before the cross we are humbled completely and yet we are exalted magnificently as we acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that, that you willingly received the guilt of our sin and bore the wrath we deserved and you gave us joyfully, imputed to us your own perfect righteousness so that we are robed and clothed and and declared now to be innocent. And our legal problem is gone, forever gone. Oh, Father, I pray that this truth would fill our lives with joy and peace and believing and that, Lord, it would, it would change our demeanor, that there would be calm, there would be, there'd be love and kindness and patience and compassion as we receive by the power of the Holy Spirit this gift of justification. Father, I pray that it free us to go to war against besetting sin. Not seeking to gain your favor, but Lord, standing on the rock of our justification and your promise of love and eternal blessing. And on the basis of that sure foundation, we'd go to war with our sin, confident of victory. And Father, we, we ask you to do this for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, for the spread of the gospel, that our our lives and our message to the world 
Uh, Lord, could be Jesus, Jesus saves great sinners. And God is just and the joyful justifier of the ungodly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond by singing together 521 in the hymnal, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. When he comes with trumpet sound, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, and in that faultless to stand before the throne. Let's stand to sing. you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance of his face upon you and give you his peace till Christ come again. Amen.